0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: I think the age of the omnipotent general style, I've got the answers and you'll do what I say, does not work in this day and age. The ability to say, I'm moving past that win lose scenario and I'm going to collaborate. How do we recognize that we have made some mistakes? How do we become part of that solution? I think that is the wave of the future.
2: Hello and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, Chairman of Selfridges Group. And I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It must be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to overcome the climate crisis and transition to a cleaner and more just economy. Through this podcast, we'll learn what it takes to make change happen. We'll hear from the transformers and the innovators, those who've taken existing companies and redesigned their business models, and those who've started something new. This week, I'm joined by Sally Jewell, a business executive who was appointed by President Barack Obama to serve as the 51st United States Secretary of the Interior. She was previously the CEO of Recreational Equipment, Inc., and interim CEO of The Nature Conservancy. Welcome to the podcast, Sally. Thank you, Alana. It's great to be here. I just wanted to... um, To start by asking, what was your first connection with sustainability? And how did you begin to understand that you could be part of the solution?
1: I was on the board of Outdoor Retailer Recreational Equipment Incorporated, or REI, as everybody knows it. But sustainability was not on my radar. And I think my first real introduction to sustainability came at it from a, a few angles. One is, I was visiting one of the REI stores, and the store manager was a volunteer with an organization called Forest Ethics. And she said to me, Sally, what is REI doing around its paper usage? Because we were a catalog producer at that time. And I said, I don't know. She was saying, what are the sources of our paper? So for me, that was sort of a seminal moment of, I better know the answer to these kinds of things. I had a board member who was working in this space, actually, his wife was working at Stanford University, and I think, you know, he was gaining some understanding of sustainability and climate change, you know, at that time before it was regularly spoken of. So, that's kind of where it started, but I'd say one really interesting thing with Forest Ethics is that it started to take on large catalog retailers, and I think it was 2002, Forest Ethics put a full-page ad in the New York Times that talked about Victoria's dirty little secret and a scantily clad model holding a picture of a chainsaw. And it drove people to their website, which rated catalog retailers – it was around holidays – with Santa Clauses, fruitcakes, and with lumps of coal. REI was on that list and we earned four lumps of coal and one fruitcake. That is not where an environmentally minded company wants to be. So, you know, it was a good wake up call saying, wait a minute, our reputation is at risk. Doing the right thing for our customers who happen to be our owners as a cooperative is important. And I would say that was a catalytic event that really helped me understand that I better be on top of this.
2: I mean, what I love about that story is it talks about well, three key stakeholders. So you have an employee, you have a a board member, and you have your customer, essentially, as well as an NGO. So you have all of them having the same conversation and business being at the sort of crux of it. And that's, of course, where the risk is, but also where the opportunity is. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of multi-stakeholder management? It's pretty well-established way of business management or thinking, but does it go deep enough? What are its strengths and where have you seen it done well? I mean, these are complicated
1: issues. And I would say that the best mechanism is to bring people together and find that common ground. A very activist NGO has sort of a single-minded focus, typically, and that makes that target really easy. And a business doesn't necessarily have a single-minded focus, but, you know, focus on profitability and clarity on who the customer is and what the bottom line looks like and what the scorecard looks like. And buying something that's more expensive or that, you know, your customer isn't demanding yet may not seem like it makes sense for business, but you ignore it at your peril because of your reputation. Government plays a role in terms of, you know, setting the rules of the game, What's the intersection of interest? That's the sweet spot. That's where everybody aligns. So that's how it all knits together. And I don't think we get there without that.
2: I mean, I'm hoping that a lot of the changes that are happening in Europe and America on the governance frameworks are going to drive some of this forward. What kind of conversations are you having at board level now in your current roles?
1: Many businesses want to be part of the solution, and they're juggling a lot of things. And all of those things are a little bit scary to business leaders and boards right now as they navigate their way forward. There's some cautionary tales of business leaders that have gone too far, and their boards have been uncomfortable, and so they've been removed. And then there's something like ExxonMobil right now, where you've got three out of the four dissident board members that are saying... If you don't get on this, you're going to be undermining shareholder value, and we're going to change out your board. So going back to my journey at REI, it is not easy. When we were trying to figure out what is our impact on the biosphere, we pulled about 24 employees together and spent three days in a room talking about all of our impacts. And those were people at every level and across many parts of our business to say, where are the areas we need to concentrate? That I don't think is happening yet to the extent it could. And the leadership of the CEO and the support for the sustainability efforts and bringing that into the everyday lexicon, goals, objectives, measures is going to be critical to make progress.
2: It is a minefield. And then you throw in a pandemic on top of all of it. And it's it's a lot for leadership to grapple with. But it's also a lot for governments to grapple with. And um, as Secretary for the Interior under Barack Obama, you tried to bring in what you call thoughtful regulation to create a level playing field for business in terms of its impact on the environment. But as we've discussed, when you look at all the aspects of your supply chain as a business leader, it seems there are so many that ought to be regulated but aren't. I often feel overwhelmed by the responsibility to self-regulate as a business person. Why is it taking so long? And what is stopping us from getting the regulation that this planet and the people deserve?
1: You know, I think one of the things that was just so clear to me in government that was less clear when I was in business is that there are no no no-brainers in government. Everything is a brainer. There is an activist group or a business or someone's interest for even the most obvious things that you'd say, this is clearly in everyone's best interest. We should just do this. And then you get delayed for you know multiple years because of some activist group that they're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, or there's some aspect of their business that they're relying upon or the trade association for the businesses they represent, And they become very powerful and it makes change very difficult. Just a quick example. As Secretary of the Interior in the United States, you're dealing with natural resources, public lands, relationships with indigenous communities, wildlife, not letting species become endangered, energy development on public lands. That's kind of the nutshell. It's a little different than the Interior Ministry in many countries. I could not get a very simple regulation past, which is we have a problem with invasive snakes in the Florida Everglades and in other areas. Let's not import any more species of potentially invasive snakes because we've already got a big problem with Burmese pythons and boa constrictors. (laughs) So these are snakes that are not yet permitted to go into the United States and the reptile keepers lobby made it nearly impossible. It took me three years to get that simple regulation passed that says there is no market for it yet in the United States. Let's not let these snakes in because then we'll have a bigger problem than we have. That was probably the biggest thing that I would say would have been a no-brainer that I could not get done and I was stunned. So self-regulation doesn't work, especially if it puts a business at a competitive disadvantage. I think one of the biggest barriers to moving forward with the regulation that we need are trade associations. You will have individual businesses that will say the right thing and then you'll have trade associations lobbying generally for the status quo or for reduced regulation and some of this is a lack of courage on the part of the business leaders. I'm going to say the right thing when I'm meeting with Sally or I'm talking to the press and I'm going to let Fill in the blanks on the trade association. Do my dirty work for me. Because they are sort of single-mindedly focused on the health of that industry. A lot of times it's around reducing taxation or reducing regulation. Companies need to hold their trade associations accountable. They need to come together not as competitors but as collaborators. So whether you're in the uh, fashion business or you're in the oil and gas business. What are the common intersections of interest where you would like to see your organization, you know, be something you can be proud of, something that helps the earth, doesn't hurt the earth. So what does that look like? And then hold your trade association accountable for moving regulation in that direction. There's a, a phrase that I used when I was running REI and calling on government leaders and The phrase is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Businesses ignore government at their peril. They ignore regulation at their peril. Now, sometimes it may be, I want to stop a piece of regulation or I want to stop taxation that might hurt my business. But what if the focus was, I want to work with industry partners on regulation that's going to address the challenges that we have around climate change and level the playing field so you as a self-regulator that wants to do the right thing isn't put at a competitive disadvantage compared to another competitor down the street because you're doing the right thing and they are not. It's just very hard to do
2: unless you collaborate. It's so complicated and it makes you wonder sometimes, is it capitalism that's the problem or is it democracy that's the problem? You know, is the situation now so urgent that we just need really strong leadership Centrally. I mean, nobody wants to not live in a democracy, but then at the same time, nobody wants dramatic climate shift and destruction of the planet. So anyway, that's a big question, but it's, uh, it sometimes seems so frustrating to have to jump through all these hoops, whether you're in business or in government.
1: There's no question to me that democracy is absolutely essential. Regulation is messy, but what will drive it forward is... People working together. I mean, I used to be on panel discussions all the time with Walmart. Now, REI and Walmart, people normally wouldn't talk about in the same sentence. Very different companies, but both devoted to sustainability. And when you do that, you build credibility with government at every level, and that's when you affect change. So give me a democracy any day, but, boy, it does not move quickly. And, yes, as our planet is in deep trouble, we need to move quicker.
2: Well, Certainly, it feels like there's so much good energy coming out of the U.S. right now. Does it feel that way from where you're sitting?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is no question that there is a sea change in the United States. And the thing I take heart in is the engagement of young people. And I'm quite optimistic about the capacity and the commitment and the energy of this emerging generation, not just uh, millennials, but the young people coming up behind them as well. These incredible young leaders that are making very clear what they expect for this world they're inheriting. And once we unlock human innovation and we get business working collaboratively with government on solutions to how do we work together on Renewables in a way that brings the cost down and allows some of the developing countries to skip over all the steps that we went through in terms of bringing energy and distributing energy and doing it in a way that's more energy efficient.
2: So, Sally, what do you think is going to be the most important? in solving the climate crisis? Will it be regulation, innovation, or consumer demand?
1: I personally think that if you get thoughtful regulation in place, and it's based on sound science, that that will drive innovation. So if I give you an example of, say, mileage standards in cars, you had California in the United States leading the way because they had a horrible pollution problem. But mileage standards in cars saying, you know, companies, we're going to work with you to set goals that you can compete with each other. How can I have the same amount of power for a lot less fuel? Or how can I have a more powerful car that is much more efficient? At any rate, it unlocked innovation. There's no question. And I think some of the same things are happening right now around batteries, for example, and electric cars, electric vehicles in general. So that's the kind of thoughtful regulation that can drive innovation. Now, it can also drive unintended consequences. The batteries are not benign. I drive an electric car right now, a Chevrolet Bolt, and I think there's 20 pounds of cobalt, which is a conflict mineral from the Congo. I mean, I feel terrible about that. So if we begin to regulate on the social aspects of that, That will drive innovation on alternative metals, right, or alternative supplies. If lithium becomes in short supply, or in the United States, some of the biggest lithium deposits are sitting right underneath critical habitat for species in the Great Basin, that when you destroy that habitat – it continues a downward spiral for that species. So are there alternatives? I, I don't think it's a matter of regulation or innovation or consumer demand. I think they're all tied together. Consumer demand oftentimes lags because there's a lack of understanding. And there can also be a move in a direction that has unintended consequences. One thing that I became more aware of when I was running the Nature Conservancy, which is the downside to organic farming so people think, if I buy organic, I'm doing better by the planet. And certainly, I think from a health standpoint, what you're ingesting, all of that is is something to take into account. But if you're buying organic and the yield is 40% less, it takes that much more land to have the same crop. So with increasing population, if you went all organic, that would accelerate rainforest destruction, for example. So the current move is more toward regenerative agriculture. How do we bring these lands back? How do we do things that have been done by indigenous communities forever, like crop rotation? So everything is more complicated, and a consumer thinks they're doing the right thing, but without sort of thoughtful regulation and businesses, in this case, the agribusiness sector saying, hey, wait a minute, there's an unintended consequence here of going pure organic. The consumer's not going to
2: know. So how do business leaders navigate their way through this? And what qualities does it take to be a business person in this age of complexity? It takes
1: listening skills. It takes collaboration. I think the age of the sort of omnipotent general style, I've got the answers and you'll do what I say does not work in this day and age. I think any business leader needs to be decisive, but the ability to say I'm moving past that win-lose scenario and I'm going to collaborate, I'm going to form a collective to say – How do we not become vilified as the industrial agricultural complex that's killing the planet? How do we recognize that we have made some mistakes or that we have benefited from the clearing of rainforests that we now understand have so much more value? How do we become part of that solution? I think that is the wave of the future, and it is going to be about recognizing that Employees in this day and age, certainly in the fully developed world, have options, and they're not going to put up with the kind of work environment that they might have in the past, and they're not going to put up with working for an organization or an individual that doesn't treat them well or for whom they're not proud to work for.
2: And how important is the aspect of diversity and understanding how to build a diverse leadership team or workforce, how important is that as a skill for the future for business leaders?
1: I think it's very important. And I think that you we're beginning to see the downside of homogeneity on teams. In the early days where I might have been the only woman on a team, I mean, there was no people of color whatsoever. There was a heavy burden with that in terms of I'm being an example and I better not fail because there's a lot of women that are depending on me because I've been given opportunities to be at the leadership table, so I better perform. But I know I added value by bringing a lens through a lived experience that my colleagues didn't have. And I think that that is so critically important. And in my journey as Secretary of the Interior and, and since that time, working with Native American youth. Boy, I I now have such a much deeper understanding of how our systems within the United States and capitalism in general kind of conspires to keep people who do not have means, do not have a family history of higher education or education at all, or may not have the family stability that many of us have taken for granted. We just keep them down with mountains of debt and credit cards for this and ads for that. And you've got to have this and you've got to have that knowing full well, as I think credit card companies and others do, that um, they're going to bury them in debt and some of them are going to default, but it means that they can't get out of that negative spiral. There's so much That I learn by being around people that have had a different lived experience from me and that can share with me when they have the courage to do it. And it's not easy to bring your perspective to a person with more power or influence than you feel you have. You know, if you listen, they can help set you up long term for success, right? You don't listen at your peril. And I think that that is the importance of diversity besides being the right thing.
2: Sally, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to move to our quickfire round of questions, if you don't mind. So Sally, what is your definition of sustainability?
1: It is that closed loop where you're giving back, you're reusing, you're recognizing your impact, you're making adjustments.
2: And is there such a thing as sustainable growth? I think... How we define growth
1: will evolve over time. I don't think that growth can involve the continued accumulation of stuff and work for this planet. Maybe as we move toward services, as we value things that are virtual as opposed to tangible, that that may provide that growth and capacity without causing us to take more from the earth. If we begin to charge ourselves for the real impact that we have, then maybe it will cause us to use things longer, to have them more repairable and not take so much virgin material. And I think once you get to that, you can have sustainable growth, but it certainly cannot persist in the way The growth and the taking of the earth has developed in the past.
2: And who will help us reach our climate goals fastest? The disruptors who bring us brand new products or the transformers who are changing the focus of existing businesses?
1: I think both are important. The disruptors shake things up in a very terrifying way. Amazon has been a disruptor. Companies must have an online presence. Has that been good for the consumer? Certainly at a time of a pandemic, we're thankful that we could continue to get the goods that we needed, but not necessarily great for the planet. But there are an awful lot of people that need jobs, need to feel valued and major disruptions can be very, very scary and undermine security. And that's perhaps where a transformer is really critical. I use the phrase often, it's hard to let go of the from if you don't know what the to is. A transformative leader says, I recognize that people were comfortable in the from, you know, my daddy was a coal miner, my grandpappy was a coal miner. That's what I know. So if you don't paint a different picture, then you're going to have a large lobby for things to stay the same, even though they've got environmental consequences, because The need for security for my family is going to overrule what I might do for the environment.
2: And what three things are you hoping will come out of COP26?
1: If it's one major thing, it is that we align on the rules of engagement and the measures of progress, that we set goals that must be met, and then countries hold each other accountable for making progress. The COP Paris Accord was a really important step in bringing all the countries to the table and having been there and having witnessed what President Obama was doing with the leaders of India and China in advance of that, and then watching the incredibly collaborative efforts of the Pacific Island nations to say, here's what we're going to do about climate change. Your efforts are our future. We will be underwater. That was huge in terms of all countries saying we have responsibility, but we must move toward tangible goals and measures and accountability.
2: And what three things are essential to leading a sustainable business?
1: Listening to all stakeholders, collaborating with those who can affect change And then I would say painting a clear vision of how your organization is part of that solution and showing employees where they fit in that picture and why everything they do is part of that greater whole.
2: Sally Jewell, thank you so much for coming on How to Lead a Sustainable Business.
1: Thanks, Alana. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for taking on this topic. If you enjoyed
2: this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. It was edited by Debbie Kilbride with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. The executive producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.